this week we turn uh, back to Acts chapter 6. So if you would turn there, uh, after we pray, we will uh, read the passage, and then we will make some observations and some applications as we go. Um, you also might want to, this morning, uh, keep a, a finger in, um, oh, where is it? Uh, in First Timothy, uh, and because uh, we'll kind of go back and forth a little bit this morning. So let us pray together. Father in heaven, uh, you are gracious to us. And this morning, Lord, we ask for grace to give us ears to hear what the Spirit would speak to the church. Lord, we ask that you would move us by grace to obey what the Spirit reveals to us through your word this morning. We pray for all who would gather together on this Lord's Day here and in churches around the region. Lord, we think of those who will gather this morning at Wapato and we pray and ask that the gospel would be clear and without compromise uh, in that church, in this church, and in all of your churches this morning. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. As you are able, if you are able, would you stand for the reading of God's inherent, infallible word from Acts chapter 6. Verses 1 through 7. Now in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorius, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenius, and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch. These they set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them. And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. This is God's word. You may be seated. In our passage today, we're going to see several threats to the growing church in Acts chapter 6. One of the threats is disunity. Disunity caused by a neglect to include people who are unlike the majority. Another threat that we see is that those who are charged with soul care through the ministry of the word and prayer are hindered as the many needs of practical care have arisen to the forefront. And finally, we see that the church is threatened by not having a shared workload thereby that the church then is hindered from loving each other in such a way as to foster growth in Christ. As we listen to what Ephesians 4 tells us in verses 15 and 16, it says, Speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. 
So if growing in Christ's love is the aim of the church, growing in love is a work of God through the people whom God has already loved. And we love him because he first loved us, of course, right? And the preaching of God's word then is central to this growth. It is faith that comes from hearing and hearing by the word of God. So I pose a couple of questions for us this morning to ponder. What are the obstacles that prevent the body from being built up in love? What are some of the obstacles? Some of them we see here in this beginning of this passage. Prejudices. Uh, separation. Right? Hellenists were not like other Jews. They spoke Greek. Right? There was a distinction started to be made. Them and us. That sort of disunity is a hindrance to the further progress of the gospel. What other obstacles would we see? And who will remove them? That becomes the question. Verse uh, 1. Now in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. As we look at this passage, see Greek-speaking uh, Greek Jew, uh, Jewish widows were being neglected in the care of the church. At the time, the expectation was that the apostles were being held accountable for both the ministry of the word and for the practical needs of the believers. Because you remember from Acts chapter 4, in verse 34 and 35, it says, There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was needed and sold, and they laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. So the, disciple, the, the apostles had this responsibility, right, to distribute these, plus they were to preach the word of God and pray. Now, as this church uh, is supernaturally growing by the power of the Holy Spirit, the practical needs, they, they were obvious and plenty, right? And the church was doing a really good job, as we saw, right? They loved God and they loved people, and so they, they didn't think anything was, was to be held of their own, but they distributed those things and, and wanted to, to live for the uh, betterment of the, of the community as a whole. Uh, these needs were, were plentiful. And so to spend their efforts on these things would be then to the neglect of the preaching of the words, what the apostles are saying, that to, to adhere to all of these things as we do this, the practical care, this work needs to be done, um, but this has become an obstacle to the preaching of God's word and prayer. And not only that, this is a threat to unity. See, the, the Hellenists were being neglected in the daily distribution. Those who spoke Greek were distinguished from those, uh, the rest of the church. And kind of the attitude that had prevailed, and, you know, it's kind of like, well, we take care of our own. Well, then who becomes our own? Who becomes our own, right? Who is it that we care for? Who are we called to care for? And one of the marks of a healthy church that, that is growing in Christ's love is that um, the church becomes much more diversified. And these distinctions start to become no longer named, right? Unlikely people become friends. That's a display of the gospel. It is, as it's working, unlikely people become uh, friends. Older men are welcomed to coffee and to dinner and to hang out with younger men. Uh, Likewise, the, the walls that divide us in the world, you see, they're, they're starting to be 
torn down by the gospel, aren't they? The things that divide us outside of this room and in society should start to be torn down by the gospel. And see, when the, when the church is growing and it, it is obedient to this command to love one another, the church begins to look like this. One from every tribe, every tongue, every nation. We start to look like the command of Scripture, right? That is a gospel church that is growing in health. So here it is. These, these are being neglected. And then the 12 summoned the full number together and said, it is not right that we should give up the preaching of the word to serve tables. So I want to ask us this to ponder a couple of things, right? So what do you, what do you look for in a waiter when you go out to dinner? What do you look for in a good waiter? Is it the waiter who responds quickly when you kind of get their attention by knocking on the table, informing them that your water cup is empty, and then they respond quickly and fill your cup? Or is a good waiter the one who anticipates that you are going to be in need of water soon, and they come because they come early, and they say, do you need any more water? Because they want to ensure that you have a pleasant dining experience. And so they come removing any obstacles that might be in the way to a positive dining experience for you. They anticipate your needs and they step in ahead of time. Is that a good waiter? I think that is a good waiter. That is what you, we look for in a good waiter. He brings you a glass of water before it's empty. Can I get anything more for you? A good waiter is quick to, to remove any obstacle to your experience. This is the same thing when you're looking for a servant, a deacon in the church. It's the same kind of attitude. Is this one a good waiter? Is this a good servant who has in mind, I want nothing more than the power of the gospel to go forward. And if there's something going to hinder that from my brother or my sister, I'm going to see that those needs are met, that those things are taken care of so that the word will go forth. There's no hindrance to the gospel. That's the idea of what uh, these are looking for. So they summon the full number of the 12. It's not right that we should give up preaching the word um, of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men, a good repute, full of uh, spirit and wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. So the need here has been identified, right? The needs had been prioritized by the apostles. The priority was the preaching of God's word and prayer. That's the priority. The practical needs of the people going unmet had become a, an obstacle to the church being built up in love. The practical needs going unmet would then hinder the gospel. And so the question here before them is, from the apostles is, who will do this work? Who is it that will remove the obstacles to the ministry of the word and prayer? And the charge from the apostles is, you guys choose seven from among you. And then notice what sort of people they are to be. Pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty, but we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. In the book of Acts here in chapter six, we see the first three indicators of what sort a servant ought to be. Of a good reputation, number one. Number two, full of the spirit. Number three, full of wisdom. A deacon is one who's known for a spiritual approach to practical needs. Because anybody can kind of serve and wait a table, can't they? 
But a deacon, one who serves in the church, has to have a spiritual mindset in their service. It's one who puts the spirit before the natural. And yet, provides for the natural to, to lift up and, and, and encourage the spiritual. Do you see? See how it kind of it works together, right? It's a spiritual approach to practical needs. In other words, the deacon understands that the practical needs being met serve a greater spiritual purpose and a greater spiritual need. A deacon is one who is known to wisely provide for practical need while giving priority to the spiritual nature of the work. There's a spiritual nature to the work, but it fulfills a practical need, but the greater need is spiritual, and so he who is spiritual does that. A good deacon prioritizes prioritizes things. He prioritizes um, God over man, even though he's serving man. Right? He prioritizes the word of God over man, but he's still serving man. But God is first, right? And the word of God is first. He uh, prioritizes the soul over the practical body needs, right? He prioritizes a person's soul. He prioritizes eternity over the temporal, all while removing obstacles to the top priority of the ministry of the word and of prayer. See, the forward move of the gospel is the priority of the elder, isn't it? The forward move of the gospel is the priority of the, of the elder. And the forward move of the gospel is the priority of the deacon. The forward move of the gospel is the aim of all people who belong to the kingdom of God. The forward move of the gospel. What will we do to remove the obstacles to that forward move? So I want to look a little bit more at what deacons uh, are. So let's turn with me to 1 Timothy chapter 3. We're going to look at verses 8 through 13 together. I'm going to read that chunk, and then I'm going to break that down a little bit. Deacons, likewise, must be dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain. They must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience, and let them also be tested first, then let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. Their wives, likewise, must be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. Let deacons each be the husband of one wife, managing their children and their households well. For those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. As we look at verse 8, notice this. Deacons likewise must be dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain. See, deacons are sincere. They're dignified. Not double-tongued. Their yes is yes, their no is no. They don't say one thing to one person, something to someone else to gain favor for themselves. In other words, they model speaking the truth in love. The deacon is sober-minded and content. The deacon sacrifices their time, energy, and resources for others. They are content with what God has provided them, and they don't use their spiritual work to gain a position of status for themselves. It's really a servant position. I have been uh, in churches where deacons were sort of exalted to some sort of, I don't know, a, a strange level where, you know, they were talked about in reverence as some sort of leader. Yes, they are leaders in a sense. But a deacon, a sincere deacon, according to the scripture, is a servant. Is a servant to all who lays himself down for others, for the sake of others. But de uh, deacons are sincere, truthful, and honest. 
Verse 9 says, They must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. The deacon has knowledge of sound doctrine. The deacon understands the faith. He understands the gospel of Jesus Christ. The deacon is experienced in walking that faith out that he, he possesses. His doctrine and his life match. The deacon does not have doubts concerning the truth of the gospel. Deacons are those who know the truth of the gospel, the truth of God's word, in their own converting experience well enough with proficiency to live that out and model it for others. The deacon is mastered by God's word. Verses 10 through 13, it says, Let him also be tested. Then let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. Their wives, likewise, must be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. Let deacons each be the husband of one wife, managing their children and their households well. For those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and also a great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. See, a servant of God will be tested, won't he? A servant of God will be tested in this. I don't know if you guys um, have ever been tested in this, but... You'll be tested in patience for others and with others. Your love for others will be tested. How about this one? Has your joy ever been tested? Your joy will be tested. Your endurance will be tested. The deacon is one who, when tested, remains true to their con convictions. When the deacon has reached his limits in patience, love, and endurance, his joy in the Lord remains, and he presses on. He presses on to serve up God's Word while continually meeting the practical needs in the body. Deacons serve the table of the Lord to advance the gospel. Deacons serve the table of the Lord to increase the health of the body. Deacons serve the table of the Lord to encourage the rejoicing of the saints in their great salvation. As we look back at what I said about Ephesians 4, 15 and 16, as everyone in the church is to serve one another, that we build each other up in love in Christ, that we grow in Him, we grow in that love. Deacon serves an essential component to the body building itself in love. As deacons remove obstacles to the preaching of the word and prayer, the body can be equipped by the elders preaching. Deacons serve to facilitate the growth of the body to full maturity in Christ so that each one is equipped doing their part to build itself up in love. I would ask us this morning, are you called to serve as a deacon? Do you have a strong desire to facilitate the preaching of God's word? Are you called to remove obstacles uh, to the forward move of the gospel? See, I ask that, and not everyone is called to serve as a deacon, right? But all are called to be servants of Christ. Every one of us is called to be a servant of Christ. And that which the elders and deacons lead the way in, all Christians ought to strive for that. And in those things that we talked about, all Christians are called to move the gospel forward. All Christians are called to live their life in the Spirit and to grow in spiritual wisdom. All Christians are called to have a faith that is sincere. All Christians are, are to be growing in a mental understanding of sound doctrine and to have an experiential understanding of gospel living. Look at what follows Paul's instruction to Timothy concerning the elders and deacons. In uh, 1 Timothy 3, 14 and 15, he says, I hope to come to you soon, but I'm writing these things uh, to you so that if I delay that you know how you ought to behave 
in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. Paul says behavior and confession are inseparable parts of godliness for all believers. Behavior and confession that is consistent with the gospel serves as a pillar and a buttress of the truth. In other words, our behavior that is consistent with the confession of the gospel is a foundational support to the reality of God's word and that all of us are responsible to move the gospel forward. What will we do to remove the obstacles to the gospel? Our deacons remove obstacles in the church's body life that hinder the forward move of the gospel in very practical ways, right? As we see here, as, as, as um, Luke uh, d- demonstrates to us that, that the, apostles, the apostles call out and say, you know, appoint somebody to this work. Have them remove these obstacles because we are dedicated to the preaching of the word and prayer, the forward move of the gospel. Right? And that is uh, what the deacons do. They, they are good waiters, as it were, good servants who anticipate needs and remove them. And, and regardless of, of what kind of people that we have in the church, right? See, they were making this distinction between the Hellenist Jews and, and the Jewish speaking Jews, right? And there's no distinction. The deacon says, no, I serve all who are in Christ, right? And removing that obstacle of disunity, uh, that is the aim of the the deacon. But every blood-bought, born-again believer in Christ, see, they have each one of us, each one of you has value in the church. Each one of you does. If you think about Ephesians 4, it says all of us, right? When each part is doing its part, the church builds itself up in love. So that means that you have a part and you have a role regardless of what your background is, regardless of where you come. You have a duty and an obligation to remove obstacles to the preaching of God's word and the forward move of the gospel. And how do we do that, right? How do we do that with one another? Well, with one another, it's about disciple making, isn't it? It's about removing obstacles uh, to their spiritual life, things that might hinder unity in your church, things that might hinder that brother or sister from growing in the likeness of Christ. And we sit down and and do the hard work of disciple-making as we kind of talked about this morning in our Sunday school class about church discipline, but not church discipline in in the formal way, but church discipline in a really informal way is, hey, brother, this is hindering you. It's a correction. It's a teaching of correction, right? And that, and we're working forward to uh, look, looking in that. Each one of us is obligated uh, to be in disciple-making relationships in that way. Things that might hinder the church's unity. Uh, for the sake of the faith of God's elect, I'm asking you this. Are you removing the obstacles to growth in the gospel of Jesus Christ in your church, to your neighbor, to your brothers, to your sisters? And do we think about that? For the sake of the faith of God's elect... Do we think that way? That that is my aim for the sake of John Roberts' faith, right? I'm willing to be vulnerable before him and I'm willing to be honest if he's off the rails, right? Because it's for the sake of his faith. It's for the sake of unity in the church. It's for the sake of their growth in the gospel. It's for the sake of the power of the gospel to be manifested in the world and through the rest of the church. 
for the sake of the faith of God's elect, are we removing obstacles to growth in the gospel? Or, or are we the ones who are a hindrance to the efficacy of God's word? Are we a hindrance to its efficient growth? How many ways can you think of that we can be a hindrance to the word of God going forth in power in the gospel? I can think of many, many ways when you could be, you could be a hindrance to the gospel through your attitudes, through sin, through prejudices, making it all about you. Those are hindrances to the forward move of the gospel. Do you hinder the uh, efficacy of God's word because we neglect to work? Sometimes we can hinder the forward move of the gospel because we neglect to do our God-given part. We neglect to work within the body with the talents and gifts that God has given us. But ask us, are you, are we a pillar and a buttress of the truth? Think about what, what Paul commands the church when he's talking to Timothy. He says, behavior matters. Godliness matters. Godliness shows that you are indeed of the truth, right? And he says, I'm telling you all of these things, Timothy, so that you might know how one ought to behave in the household of God. And then he describes that as a pillar and a buttress of the truth. So behavior matters, right? How we conduct ourselves matters in moving forward in the gospel. Our love for one another matters. It is that which displays to the world that we are entirely different, right? That something new is going on. Well, he chooses these men who are full of the Spirit. They are full of wisdom. They lay hands on them and they pray on them. And then look at the result that happens when each part is doing its part. Verse 7, And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. What is the church growth program? What's the church growth program? What, is, what do most churches in the world think that their, their church growth strategy is? Church growth strategy in most places, in most churches in the world is this, right? If I give the people the type of music that they like, they'll come. If I have a comfortable place for them to sit, they will come. If I don't point out things that kind of pierce their heart and they can be a little more comfortable, they'll come. If I don't talk about the danger of sin, they'll come. I need them to think well of me, right? If they think well of me, I can fill the place. If I have the right kind of people, the right kind of music, the right look, People will come. I'll make them comfortable. That is a worldly system that has been applied to the church. But I think clearly we can see here in the scripture that the growth program of the church, God's growth program, is the ministry of the word and prayer. Those two things. That's God's growth program. This is how he grows the church. 
And it says here that as they have taken care of practical needs, removing the, the obstacles to the gospel, guess what happens? The result of being obedient to the faith, of serving uh, one another well, of removing these obstacles, is that the word of God continued to increase and the number of the disciples multiplied. That is God's growth plan. The forward move of his gospel is proclaiming forgiveness for sin in Jesus Christ. That's what grows the church. It's the proclamation of the gospel that Jesus Christ died for sinners. That moves the church forward. That preaching that truth is what God uses to add to his church. So what are we doing as members of that church? Some of you are called to be evangelists and some of you do that faithfully. Some of you are probably called to remove obstacles out of the way so that ones who are gifted with that can go do that. Removing obstacles to the proclamation of the gospel. I would ask us here as a church, do you desire to have growth here at Spring Hill Church? I certainly do. But I know God's plan is the preaching of God's word. What it says. That's the preaching of God's word is God's plan for growth. So I ask us this. We need to ask ourselves these things. If we are committed to growing God's church God's way, I think we also have to ask ourselves, are we walking in unity with one another? Are we the church body who is aimed at removing barriers to the preaching of God's word? Do you realize that, see, this task of me standing up here and preaching this morning it's not a task that I do alone. It's a task that all of you participate in, in one way or another, in serving one another, serving each other's needs. I am freed to pray and be about the ministry of the Word. Are we ones who are walking in unity? Are we ones who have as our aim to remove barriers to the gospel going forward?